Hi, welcome to You've Got Potential, a podcast focused on undergraduate research and researchers and looking into their, their work, their lives, and just getting a broad overview of individual cases. So today we have Sunny Wang here as our guest. Sunny, you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. I am Sunny Wang. I recently graduated from Rutgers as a uh, cell biology and neuroscience major. And although I'm here on this podcast, I was mostly involved in research just for the last semester, all online. So <laughs> not the best, but it is what it is. Yeah. So what specifically were you researching? The broad goal is to find therapies for Huntington's, right? And based on what you can find there, maybe uh, extend it to other neurodegenerative diseases. But the main focus of the lab for the past few years has been to try and uh, encourage the cells to uh, create what are essentially chaperone proteins in order to force the mutant proteins to aggregate together, all right? So in the past, the idea was in neurodegenerative disease, when you have these, you know, mutant proteins, it is the proteins that are causing all the, that it is the presence of these proteins that are causing the damage, right? Um, so it, that's what they originally thought. They spent years trying to get rid of these little solid aggregations that it's like, solid to liquid-ish aggregations, right? Just little clumps of these mutant proteins. Unfortunately, after now, after they have tried to use that in clinical trials, it's basically failed. There's really no good data that supports that those aggregations are actually causing any, causing the disease state and that removing them makes things better. So now they have to basically reinvent their framework and they've in this lab is focusing on one of the newer ones which is the idea that the aggregations are a are a good sign um uh, of course not good in the sense that you have the neurodegenerative disease right but they're good in that um the proteins when they're in a liquid state are probably causing the damage so when they've clumped together that means your cell is, you know, doing janitor work, cleaning them up, pushing them together so they can't really affect anything else. In the past, it has focused a lot on heat shock, cold shock, because uh, those two treatments both um, cause the expression of this little heat shock protein, all right? Thing about getting burned is not only does it hurt a lot, but it cooks you, it cooks your cells, it cooks your proteins, right? And what that does is it, it unfolds them right? So the heat shock uh, chaperones, their job is to either make sure that things don't get unfolded to begin with, or to refold them, or to take the things that have been, uh, well, cooked, and, you know, clean them up, move them away, right? So that they don't cause damage, because every protein in the body essentially requires that specific conformation, or else it's probably going to act not great. Worst case scenario, it acts like a prion, which, you know, at that point, it's just a disease. Um, now, intrinsically disordered regions, um, those parts of the protein don't have like a single folding state, basically. 
they're a bit more they're a bit more wiggly, right? So most people think of proteins, even when they're like in your cell as kind of solid, right? I, well, solid enough. But um, for these ones, they're, they're a bit more on the liquid side than even most proteins are because they're so uh, fluid and the brain has a lot of them. Now, the point of these proteins is to be adaptable. They have to, in very slight changes to the environment, the thermodynamic, the thermodynamic uh, state that the protein likes to be in changes. Huntington's has the nice thing of being one, one gene dependent, one dominant gene, right? So there's like one protein, the Huntington protein, where uh, it has a polycutale, right? That protein has a normally, even normally has a bunch of glutamines at its end, right? The idea is that where those glutamines are is part of the intrinsically disordered region, right? Now, as you increase the number of glutamines here, the more likely you are to have Huntington's disease. Ah, so which part of the project are you specifically involved in? Yeah, so when I was there for the one semester, we had started working on investigating the uh, cytoskeleton of the cell, right? To see if that would, you know, if retaining the cytoskeleton affects how the cell responds to these things. The uh, reason that they were looking at the cytoskeleton specifically was because, uh, well, Huntington, number one, Huntington protein is a cytoskeleton uh, related protein. It is involved in that. So I think that was part of it, but also mostly because there were a few papers from quite a number of years ago, actually, that suggested uh, aggregation of those proteins may have been dependent on the cytoskeleton being there, right? To be honest, <laughs> while I was there, we didn't get quite far in it. We had already, they had already gathered the data, taken the pictures of the cells, right? When I had gotten in there, our job was to create like a program to analyze them or use the macros of one of the previous software to try and figure out how to analyze them which is, uh, well, not something I had ever done before. Uh, it, it was a good skill to try and learn, and it is probably something that is going to be useful for me in the future. But, oh my God, it kicked my ass. It kicked my ass. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was very rough. Yeah, no, I, I had no experience in that. And to make things worse for the lab in general, the guy who had made the previous macro uh, for ImageJ, which was the software you're using, the guy who did that and who knew how to use ImageJ had left the lab. So Maxim and Sachin are the two uh, heavy hitters. They uh, <laughs> they could figure out that macro a lot better uh, than I, I could uh, at the very least. Right, uh, and they managed to figure out a macro and refine it to a point, I think, to where it was usable. But the problem was the semester ended before we could figure out whether it was usable. So really, I, I never even saw the end of this project. Um, but <laughs> but uh, I, I, I did learn quite a bit about the lab before I left. So it, it is a shame that, uh, uh, that I couldn't stay for a bit longer. Do you think you could uh, talk about how 
uh, all those calculations you were doing in ImageJ and creating mm -hmm. macros, how that related to the overall uh, research goal? Because I actually use ImageJ in, in my chemistry lab uh, for yeah. surface area calculations. Um, so I found it like awesome that it's used like everywhere. Count the cells, count their nuclei. Uh, we could also use it to count how many uh, inclusion bodies, which are, you know, the aggregations. Inclusion bodies are the aggregations. So the, how many inclusion bodies there were, how much diffused protein there were, depending on the stains we used, right? And um, theoretically, uh, we might be moving in this direction, how many nearites and how long they are, right? So that would be more cytoskeletal information. How do those calculations and that data you're collecting, how does that contribute to the overall goal of uh, finding therapeutics for hunting? Oh, disease? yeah, yeah. So, um, so the nearites are our way of, uh, well, technically theirs now, since I'm no longer part of it, but it's their way of abstracting the, cyto the health of the cytoskeleton, right? So if you add a drug that destroys the cytoskeleton, well, you're not going to have many neorites. They're just not going to be able to grow them because it's not going to be able to create the cytoskeleton to like maintain them and spread them out. Uh, um, so if you can count the neorites and count how long they are, then you can might be able to see compare that compare that to the amount of aggregations there are and see if there's any relationship at all. You mentioned that you spent your last semester working in your lab, but you've had no experience prior. So how is this semester's experience, particularly doing remote research, helped to shape your wish to pursue an MD-PhD in your case? Mm. I'd say the experience was overall positive, right? Uh, I and I definitely feel like I'd enjoy it if I was like you know uh, there and I could uh, I don't know do do stuff that I actually uh, knew how to do. Also, um, God, the uh, the progress report. Oh man, yeah, that was very interesting. That was actually probably my favorite part of this because I was actually able to like do something. I like it. I just went through the entire catalog of readings. Some of them I had read before, but like, I mean, they weren't really relevant until like I sat down and just read through all of them and uh, pieced them together. And that was really, really, really helpful. And by the end, I actually kind of enjoyed writing the report, but uh, yeah, um, based on those, uh, I guess, scattered experiences, I'd say, yeah, I'd wanna keep doing this. And it's definitely something I'd like to keep doing in the future. Incredible. I'm just to like hear your explanation of your entire research project. Only having experience online for only one semester is like incredible because it has taken me like years to really understand, barely understand what the hell I'm doing in my own project. So like <laughs> kudos to you. Um, and then you also mentioned that um, your project on measuring cell or counting cells and measuring neurite outgrowth was is basically to see if there's a connection between cytoskeleton health and um, neurodegeneration. And like, I think it really speaks to how, like you said, we don't really know what's going on. So all of this work, all of the frustrations of like just making the code and like, for example, I also did neurite outgrowth, but I did it by hand. And like, yeah, it, it was like you trace, every like neuron neurite whatever um so all of that time consuming like bs just to see like if 
it works or not and maybe like all of your work has just been like oh no never mind oh god let's not do that anymore it really speaks to like how how like research requires patience and like you have to understand like it's not like every experiment's gonna work or like every approach is gonna work so aside from that like what's like a main takeaway that you learned from like your experience in the lab or in the lab <laughs> oh a uh, main takeaway yeah, that is a good question. Um, I'd say, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I have that much, uh, like, I guess, advice or a main takeaway from here. It's mostly like, uh, I guess, the one thing I've heard a lot, you know, ask questions. Don't really, seriously, just like ask ask questions sometimes even if you feel like you're gonna annoy people just because like it, it'll really sometimes that you make an assumption in the back of your head or, or there's like this one detail that you don't quite understand but once you figure it out uh suddenly <laughs> suddenly a lot of other stuff makes sense right um don't be too intimidated by not knowing what you're doing when you're going make do what you get with what you got right like okay so uh, the entire time we're just trying to create a macro well all right this sucks but like uh i guess i'll learn what i can from it or um because we're not doing any wet lab work the most of what i can do even for like this progress report you know because that's the thing um because i basically did not do very much the entire semester i actually couldn't write about like my own research for the progress report. So what I did was I just read through all the lab's papers to see what I could write about from there. And that was a very good decision to make. Um, well, not for my sleep during that time, but for uh, my understanding of the lab. Uh, of course, the sleep probably would have been fine if I had spaced out my work a bit better. But uh, well, uh, because you get a much better understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. And well, to me, that makes it a lot more exciting and a lot easier to just like, you know, grind through the stuff that's like, ah, why don't this work, right? I want to hear about um, why you decided to go MD-PhD, how this lab affected um, mm -hmm. your continued pursuit of it. Uh, were you interested in grad school first or MD first? So just want to hear your, uh, your, your sort of journeys through that. Yeah, so... Um... When I first entered college, I did not know uh, I wanted to do research back then. To say I like learning, it sounds, <laughs> sounds way too simple. But I mean, I, I was a compulsive class taker is what I was. Um, uh, it, it helped me in a lot of ways. But um, at the time, I didn't really know too much about research, right? So then what actually started to push me in the direction was in my first semester, I had psychology, general psychology. And I talked with my professor, uh, Robert Foles, who is a Luddite and a magnificent man. <laughs> and he's, he, I mean, he, he introduced us to papers in class, right? And, you know, he, his office hours were one of the only ones I could easily get to consistently. I got an idea over time of how people approached research, right? What they needed to do. So like some stuff like statistics, like learning statistics. So you know how to like actually use the data you gather, right? That's maybe the most important thing. But even before that, just to think about it, like as simple as 
you try to isolate this variable. All your, like that's the, uh, sometimes that's the easy part. You think about the thing that you want to interact with. All the problems that you encounter are like, well, how do you actually do this, right? Like, it, it, how do you isolate this? How do you make an actual experiment that like doesn't uh, open you up to a hundred different like counter hypotheses, right? So, I mean, I thought it was kind of fun, the idea of that, right? So I thought, all right, well, I might want to try and get in a lab. Uh, second semester, I had molecular biology with Dr. Liu, right? And I talked with her a bit. I thought, no, oh, yeah, this seems interesting. So uh, I asked her, hey, uh, would I be able to join your lab at somebody? And she's like, mm, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not in that exact way, but like, I mean, it was basically, I asked and she was like, yeah, all right. I mean, I, I don't let volunteers in. I like um, to have that mutual, like, uh, uh, so like I would have to sign up for credits, right? That would be next semester, right? I was like, yeah, sure. Well, um, we didn't exactly, uh, the plans were a little bit ruined by, I, I don't know, some some little thing. I don't know if you've noticed uh, the pandemic, but- Don't know what you're talking uh, about. Yeah, you know, it, it obliterated that. Um, so I, well, yeah, no, that, that wasn't it. I assumed actually that it, I just wouldn't be able to do it. Then actually um, I spoke in the biochemistry and biomedical society and uh, biomedical society, was that exactly? The, the club were both in Georgia, uh, in Eric. MBB Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MBB Society, one of the members told me that their lab was doing online work. And I was like, wait a minute, this is real? And so th that then I, I emailed Dr. Liu again. And she was like, oh, yeah, no, you, you could join us for online work. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so I signed up for that. And at the time, I uh, didn't... Oh, at this time, I knew what I wanted to do would involve research, right? But at that, I, I hadn't thought about graduating at this point yet. So in my mind, I still had like one, maybe even like two years left to maybe do stuff in this lab or like keep going. Um, but the problem is the motivation, my motivation for wanting to go down MD PhD was kind of like unrelated to what is happening here. Um, because to me, I I wanted to do research, right? But I also wanted to do a, a particular type of perhaps um, more hands-on patient direct research, mm -hmm. right? So direct clinical work. And Biomedical a, a research. lot of that, yeah, yeah. A lot mm -hmm. of that requires um, you to be an MD, PhD, right? Or, or less, a lot of times they won't let you, you know, directly work with the patients. So- I figured why not like take uh, a couple years of full-time, like a gap year or two, take it off, uh, do some full-time work, either clinical or research related and focus on that first before I apply. And I could do that instead of like sitting in undergrad for an extended amount of time. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. So, so if, if, uh, if you don't mind me asking, so, uh, so I guess it'll have like a gap year or two, like you said, um, do you have any um, uh, plans set up or do you have any thought mm -hmm. of what you'd want to do uh, specifically, whether I mean, clinical work is always important for MD yeah. admissions, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if, yeah, no, th this year has been very busy. One interesting thing was um, me realizing that, oh, I could actually do things uh, made me uh, re realize, made me more motivated to actually do them. It's weird, right? Like, um, 
I'm taking an EMT class right now. I tried to sign up for an EMS agency. Um, it didn't work out. And I suspect it is because they know I'm not going to be around here for too long because I'm also applying to research labs um, and they are not local. Yeah. Um, Wait, so did you get an EMS core to sponsor you for the, for the... Uh, no, no, that's the thing because I was not already part of an agency. So, you know, I mean, uh, I just decided, well, I mean... I'm not going to wait for this. So I, I'm just going to do it now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the plan is, well, assuming I pass the NREMT exam uh, to work in a hospital as a patient care technician for a while before until I get into a lab, right? But right now, the main focus, yes, is to find a lab, do some full-time research and for maybe one or two years. And the golden... The ideal for me right now is a lab at the NIH, the, uh, the IRTA program, right? That was when I asked the um, Dr. Milenig, yeah, Georgia told me about Dr. Milenig. Um, he mentioned the IRT program was a great way to get some experience, even, it is, I mean, almost especially if you have had no experience yourself, but you know that it's something you might want to do. Can you tell us, as someone that is looking into the uh, NIH IR, uh, NRT program or IRT program, sorry, I just forgot the letters, but would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Because we discussed it in NDB Society and it's a great <laughs> platform for people that come right out of undergrad with not so much research experience, but or people that want to learn more about research, do more research. The NIH has like so many things that like really help <laughs> students do research. Um, can you yeah. tell us a little bit of what it is and what it does? All right, yeah. So the NIH IRTA program is the Intramural Research Training Award, right? Basically, the idea is uh, you apply to the program as a whole, not to a specific lab. This is in pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, uh, basically the PIs might try to find you or you, apply, you email PIs, right? Same difference. Well, no, actually, no, not same difference. Uh, it is pretty different, but um, either way, you find you court each other basically, and then uh, hey, it's a good analogy. That's a that's and a good then, way of putting it. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You court each other. You might you might be courting many PIs at once. <laughs> but uh, but you court each other, and then um, based on how that goes, if they like your materials, if they like the interview, you know, if they like your references, they might say, hey, you know come on on down. Uh, and um, based on your offers, based on the lab, each lab is different. They're all structured differently. You would want to talk to previous IRTA postbacs, for example, on how that works. Um, the, the thing I'm applying for specifically is the postback IRTA for people who have uh, just graduated. Um, and it is like one to two years. I mean, in reality, it's like two years because this is basically what everybody does. Uh, uh, and honestly, I, I think two years is, is a good idea because first they have to get you oriented to the lab. And then the there's also like some government training things that they, they go through first, apparently. Well, um, and by the time that is done, then you start to work in the lab. So really, if you lose the second year, you're losing more than half of the quality time that you'd be spending there, right? And they do train you. Uh, they can train you in a bunch of things. I had an interview the other day um, for a NIDA lab for drug abuse. 
where um, they were talking about, they used mice. So one of the first things they asked me was, are you okay with mice? Uh, and would you be okay with performing small surgical operations on them? And uh, uh, I'm okay with them, but that is, I did not know that uh, I, I would be able to learn the second one. That is real, to me, that's really cool, right? So they, so you, they train you in techniques, they train you how to use things like, uh, for this lab, MRIs, right? Uh, they even guide you through learning the research, research process for yourself, right? And then uh, depending on the lab, you can have a fairly independent research project or work with others. I mean, both is good, right? But the point is to make a solid research effort while you're there. So the IRTA is a great way to do that, not just for the training, right? But also one of the most valuable things is networking. Uh, everybody, a lot of the people you meet there are also, well, researchers, uh, budding researchers, actual researchers, uh, full-grown, ripened researchers, right? And they all have the, there's plenty of conferences, opportunities, plenty of times to meet, right? And this is, it's a great way to learn about other types of research, get acquainted with other people in your general field, other people maybe from other programs, and, you know, uh, make, perhaps make a mark for yourself. Sunny, I think that all throughout this conversation, there are very uh, selective things that really speak to me, and I'm sure to everyone else that is listening. Also, really apologize for my dog's work. But you are a phenomenally curious person, an incredibly open-minded uh, researcher and human, and I think these characteristics will bring you more than like a long way uh, across all of your like future interests and passions, and like really hearing you with all of this enthusiasm, not only like uh, generally, but like uh, with, with uh, regards to you're speaking about your research, but also with regards to the COVID situation, like you really take all the opportunities that are presented to you and make the best out of them. And um, I really wish you the absolute best for your future. While I know that like you can totally achieve it with this like strong-willed uh, personality and um, I would really like to thank you for having like uh, spent time with us with this podcast. I'm sure like your interview will be a great inspiration to many who will either maybe be starting to look into research, but also maybe find themselves at a stage in their lives when they're like, oh, maybe I didn't get enough research experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe I didn't do enough of this, do enough of that. Like it really is up to like the student to realize, you know, I really love these things there are ways to go forward with them and your example is like a staple one so thank you so much for uh, this great time and uh, uh, we all wish you the best it was and very nice to meet you sonny finally i only you. saw your name in the group chat that's all i, that's how <laughs> I know you. Uh, very nice yeah oh uh, by the way one last thing so uh thank you for your kind words i'd like to say one thing which is even though I have been a, the one thing that is constant is that I'm a compulsive class taker because I mean, for that was, that was fairly easy. You know, you just, well, take it. And then by the time you may regret it, you're already in it, right? And if you can power through, yeah, then you come out uh, with a meteor brain by the end. But, you know, uh, recently I've been trying my hardest to try and get all the opportunities I can out of my situation, but that's not, I, that definitely have not always been like this. Even at the start of college, you know, I wasn't very good about, you know, proactively 
doing anything, I was still in the mode of thinking of like, yeah, I'm just gonna go through my four years, right? I, of course, that, that that was not necessary, but like I wasn't, I hadn't found a, a strong internal motivation for what I wanted to do. And no matter what, I, I think for any stage of like figuring that out is probably the most important thing before, uh, you know, like even taking your opportunities because if you try and force yourself to like go for stuff that you, you're not sure why you want yet, you'll just burn yourself out really quickly. So uh, I don't know, it mixed bag. Oh, hopefully it helps some people, but uh, yeah. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and remember, you've got potential.